Good evening. So tonight's lecture is called Babylonian Jewry and the Rise of Islam. So we left off last week with the Byzantine, two weeks ago actually, with the Byzantine Empire, the Christian persecutions in the 4th and 5th century of the Common Era, and how that was spreading throughout the Byzantine Empire, which was the more dominant part of the Christian Empire, whilst Spain would have very strong anti-Semitic currents, and in fact, they would try to forcibly convert, and did at one point forcibly convert, all of Spanish Jewry. This is before the, the, the Muslims overtook Spain in the 7th century. Um, in the Byzantine Empire in particular, it was brutal. They had the Justinian Code, which pretty much shut down Torah study wherever the Byzantine Empire was. And we mentioned that it was the rise of Islam which was a check, which became a check to the Christian Empire, which at the time was becoming more and more anti-Semitic and a greater and greater threat to destroying Jewry wherever they were found. In 634 of the Common Era, when the Muslims finally conquered what we call today Iraq, Babylonian Jewry, there were approximately 806,000 Jews in Babylonia alone, by the Tigris-Euphrates rivers. There were tens of thousands of more Jews that were in the Arabian Peninsula, which we'll discuss soon. So the Muslims would overtake a very, very large Jewish population center within a short period of time from Muhammad's death in 632 of the Common Era. The story of the Jews of Babylon really begins, however, in the year 434 BCE. 434 BCE was several years before the destruction of the first base Hamikdash, before the destruction of the first temple. In that year, Nebuchadnezzar took the sages of Israel, took the cream of the crop of Israel, as, as it brings down in more than one sefer in Daniel, the book of Daniel, when Daniel went, Hananiah, Mishal, Vazar, they were all taken captured to Babylonia. And several years later, after the destruction of the first temple, the rest of the Jewish people were forced into exile to go to Babylonia. The fact that the sages and the scholars were taken, were taken first, at first glance, would have been looked at as a terrible thing. Ultimately, of course, as I've discussed in different uh, venues, this was the greatest blessing, that the sages and the scholars went first. Because by the time the one plus million other Jews ended up going to Babylonia, there was a scholarly class that was already well established in the land. Compare that to, for example, America. Who were the first Jews to come to America? Well, the first 2,500 Jews who were here at the creation of the United States were Muranos. Who were the Muranos? The Muranos were Jews who were forcibly converted, which means they had very strong Catholic influences upon them. In fact, you'll see in Amsterdam there were a lot of problems. One of them, Muranos, became very famous. His name is Baruch Spinoza. Other Muranos were Uriel de Costa, also had heretical views. 
the Marlos were not particularly strong because they had been forcibly converted. They lived at best without a Jewish education. And at worst, they did many Catholic practices. Who followed the Moranos to America? Well, between 1820 and 1860 of the Common Era in the United States, 150,000 German Jews came to America. Almost all of them reformed. That's why, 1849, you have two temples in San Francisco, Sheriff Israel, Emmanuel, both reformed temples. Those are with the 49ers. This whole Bay Area was founded by German reformed Jews predominantly. Emmanuel in San Jose, 1850-something, was founded by reformed Jews. Well, when your whole fabric of America is founded by Jews who certainly don't know that much about Torah, or at worst, were anti-Talmud, anti-oral law, well, the foundation of America was very, very shaky. And because of that, millions of Jews have been, and unfortunately, we look around, we see the descendants of these Jews who were lost in the process. Babylonia is not like that at all. By the time all of the Jewish people are exiled to Babylonia, you don't see a break in tradition whatsoever. On the contrary, you'll see a strengthening of tradition that all of the idolatry, all of the, the foibles and faults and sins that the Jewish people did in Israel, which caused the first base of English to be destroyed, all of these you don't find pre- prevalent in Babylonia. On the contrary, you see an increasingly strong community, faith-based, of course. The story of Purim is, is a question of, you know, of how there was a, a tendency to assimilate, but that was not a theological assimilation even that was just trying to fit into the people around you. Babylonia would continue to develop, and as time went on, they would become dominant. Now, Babylonian Jewry would always be the majority at some level of Jewry, because at the time of Cyrus, when he let the Jewish people go back to Israel, when Persia conquers Babylonia, of the one million Jews in the Babylonian Persian Empire, 42,000 Jews go back to the land of Israel. Only 42,000 out of 1 million Jews went back to the land of Israel to rebuild the second temple. Now, over time, it, the population grew tremendously in Israel because more Babylonian Jews eventually came, and of course, Jews propagate, uh, religious Jews propagate. Oh. But Babylonia would continue to have a very, very large Jewish presence as time went on, the second base of Mish got destroyed, the Christian persecutions got more severe, by the time of Theodosius, as we discussed two weeks ago, when he, dis- uh, when he forced the Sanhedrin to close down, shop in 363 of the Common Era, Babylonia becomes the center of world Jewry, not only in population, but in scholarship as well. And that's why the Babylonian Talmud would be the most important Talmud because all of the scholars were there. That was a Talmud, as we discussed three weeks ago, which was able to be completed in its totality. Who was the head of this Babylonian Jewry, which was approximately 90% of world Jewry at the time? The Reish Galusa, the Exilarch. The Reish Galusa, which literally means the head of the exile. Reish Galusa, the head of the exile. Was a, was a direct descendant of the house of David, of the house of King David. 
and there were approximately 40 Reish Galushas, 40 Exilarchs, from the time going all the way back to Daniel till the 11th century, really to the 14th century, but pretty much the 11th century, they were had power way into when uh, the period of time when the Arabs and the Muslims were ruling uh, Babylonia, there were Reish Galusas, there were Exilarchs who were, are discussed. Now the Talmud talks about the Reish Galusa in many, many places. Well, one of the things the Reish Galusa had the power to do, perhaps the most important function of the Reish Galusa, was that he appointed all judges for Israel. Israel, the Jewish people, had autonomy, which means they had judicial autonomy. Jews did not go to Gentile courts. They did not go to the Persian courts. They went to Jewish courts. In fact, we know that the Maimonides, the Rambam says, that one of the most severe sins is for Jews who have a case to be adjudicated amongst themselves to go to a non-Jewish court. They had autonomy. The only judges who were appointed were appointed by the Reish Galusa. If a judge adjudicated a case without being appointed by the Reish Galusa, the Talmud says, then he was personally liable for any mistakes or wrongdoing in the case. Rav, the famous Rav, who was Abba Richter Rav, who's mentioned hundreds of times in the Talmud, when he came up from Israel to Babylonia, from Palestine to Babylonia, that's when Babylonia became dominant, that was in the 3rd century, Rav was appointed a judge in Babylonia, says the Talmud, by the Reish Galusa. The Reish Galusa had jurisdiction in criminal cases, he had jurisdiction over real property, he had certain privileges, which we'll, just, we'll see soon, even when they would read the Torah, they would bring the Torah, you have to imagine, they'd go out to the, to the nation, they had humongous synagogues, thousands of people at some of the synagogues, they would go out and they would take the Torah special to the Reish Galusa, and when he would read the Torah, because in those days, there was not a Balkora, he got an Aliyah, he read the Torah. When the Reish Galusa read the Torah, he didn't go up to the Bima, the Torah went to him. He was in a class by himself. Interestingly enough, this is one of the shocking things, that when the Arabs and the Muslims overtook Babylonia in the 7th century, they would put the Reish Galusa on even a higher pedestal. He was the king of the Jews. And they gave him tremendous amounts of honor, tremendous amounts of power. They viewed him as a descendant of David, because David was, is, is an important figure in Islamic uh, tradition. And they gave him a lot of power, and a lot of prestige, a lot of honor. That started from day one of the, Babel, of the uh, Islamic conquest of Babylonia. Because when Caliph Omar comes into Babylonia, he was helped out by the Reish Galusa, and as a reward, he gave him, Omar married the former head of the Sassanids, the Persians, daughter, the Shah's daughter. He married one daughter, the, the, the chief, the head of worldwide Islam, and he gave the second daughter to the Reish Galusa, the Khanina. He gave him the second daughter of this, of this Persian Shah. Now, if you're the Reish Galusa, and you have the head of worldwide Islam, and, and they're now increasingly dominant, offering you a daughter, his sister-in-law, to be, excuse <coughs> me, he can't say no. So he converted her. Okay, he had a wife, he had children. Well, this would become a matter of dispute for literally generations, because 
the Jewish children of the Reish Galusa viewed the children that came from this second wife as questionable in nature. And, and, and rightly so at some level, you'd say. They, they'd said maybe the conversion wasn't good, maybe she was really a slave, <coughs> they didn't know how what happened exactly. Ultimately, the Goyenim decided that the conversion was good, and the kids were Jewish, but it would be a matter of debate because of the circumstances of how this happened. But, what you do see is Omar viewed the Reish Kalus as a friend, as a buddy, so much so that he gave him his sister-in-law to marry and to live as a Jew. This was the person, Omar, who was spread, who was the Paul. If you look at Islamic thought, now Omar is not liked by the Shia, by the Shiites, and we'll see that soon. The Sunnis, of course, he is the Paul for the Sunnis. He is the greatest individual who spreads Islam throughout the world. Because when Muhammad dies, Islam is pretty much only in the Arabian Peninsula, and that's it. So it would be not even the whole Saudi Arabia today. It would be Yemen and part of Saudi Arabia. But by the time Omar dies, it goes from Morocco to Persia. And he spread it throughout North Africa and the Middle East. So Omar is this world-powerful Islamic leader. He takes the Reish Galusa, puts him up on a pedestal as the king of the Jews, gives him tremendous powers, autonomy, and his sister-in-law to live as a Jew. Eventually, because the Muslims conquered all of North Africa and almost all of the Middle East and Asia Minor, so the Reish Galusa was not only the king of Babylonian Jewry, now the head of the exile for Babylonian Jewry, he was the Reish Galusa of the entire exile, pretty much, for the most part. Because the Islam <coughs> would go all the way to Spain. And at the time, there's only a few thousand Jews which were in Gaul, the Franks, which would eventually become Germany and France, there were Jews. There were a few thousand Jews in Italy. But the vast majority of the Jews were under the dominion of the Reish Galusa. Just to get an appreciation for how great the exile of the Reish Galusa is, look at source number one. Source number one is by Nasan Habavli. Nasan Habavli was a great Rishon from Babylonia, Nasan Habavli, not Nathan of Babylonia. Listen to what he says, we'll read the, the bold parts. The members of the two academies, Surah and Pampadisa, which we'll discuss shortly, <coughs> see, led by the two heads, the Gaonim, so he had the two greatest rabbinic heads. Now, this is Babylonia, we're talking at the time where the Talmud is being edited. These are the greatest scholars so Surah and Pumbadisya were the greatest yeshiva, with the greatest heads, and this is, they're at the installation of the Reish Galusa. Assemble in the house of an especially prominent man before Sabbath, on which the installation of the Exilarch, that's the Reish Galusa, is to take place. The first homage is paid on Thursday in the synagogue, the event being announced by trumpets, and everyone sends presents to the Exilarch according to his means. That's a lot of presents. On Thursday, skip, skip to the bold, on Thursday and Friday, the Exilarch gives great banquets. On the morning of the Sabbath, the nobles of the community call for him and accompany him to the synagogue. Means yet, all of the, the nobles were the, the, the most esteemed people of, of the community walking the Reish Galusa to the synagogue on the Sabbath where he is going to be installed. The whole congregation rises and remains standing until he has taken his place on the platform. He stood until he sat down. 
by the great Torah scholars today, of course, that is the custom, and rightly so. And the two Go'onim, here are the two Go'onim, the one from the Surah proceeding, have taken his seats to his right, and the left, each making obeisance. The, then Skip the Exilarch delivers a sermon on the text of the week, or commissions the Go'on of Surah, surah to do so. Then the Torah is read. When the Kohen and Levi have finished reading, the leader in prayer carries the Torah roll to the Reish Kulusa, to the Exarch. In general, Shlishi is the most prominent Aliyah after Kohen and Levi. Some opinions hold Shlishi, but most hold Shlishi. The leader in prayer carries the Torah to the Exarch. The whole congregation rising. The Exarch takes the roll in his hands and reads for it while standing. He, he doesn't go to the Bima. The Torah goes to him. And he reads from where he seats. The two heads of the schools also rise. And the Gon of Sur recites the Targum to the passage read by the Exarch. They used to translate the Torah reading that Talmud and Megillah says in other places in Shas. That when they would read the Torah, they would stop and translate it into Aramaic as they were the Torah's Torah reading. That's how they used to read the Torah in the days of the Talmud. After the Musaf prayer, the Exarch leaves the synagogue and all singing accompany him to his house. After the Exarch, re- after that, the Beishkalusa rarely goes beyond the gate of his house, where services for the community are held on the Shabbos and feast days. If the Exarch desires to pay his respects to the king, now he's talking about the, the Caliph in Baghdad, he first asks permission to do so. As he enters the palace, the king's servants hasten to meet him, now, he's a very prominent individual. I mean, like, we'll see soon how Islam theologically will view dhimmis, theologically will view non-Muslims. This is the, how, look how they treat him. Whom they, he liberally distributes gold coins for which provisions has been made beforehand. When led before the king, his seat is assigned him. The king then asks what he desires. He begins with carefully prepared words of praise and blessings reminds the kings of the custom of his fathers that all of the previous caliphs of Baghdad had given the Reish Galusa tremendous honor. The first caliph, Omar, had given him his sister-in-law, gains the favor of the king with appropriate words and receives written consent to his demands. Thereupon, rejoiced, he takes leave of the king. This is Nasan Abadli, a Jew, a Jewish shades, writing this in the 10th century. This was the reality of the Reish Galusa. Interestingly enough, for those who pay very careful attention, every Shabbos, if you're Ashkenazi, till this very day, we say a our blessing for the Reish Galusa. It's, it's, it's astonishing. It's almost an anachronism. Because in Yokum Porkan, we say for the Reish Galusa. The Asfarim do not have it, which at some level makes sense. There's no Reish Galusa today. So we still have the original Yokum Porkan prayer. In Yokum Porkan, it says for the Reish Galusa. We pray for the heads of the exile. Now, why, one of the reasons before Islam would come, why Babylonian Jewry would be successful, why Babylonian Jewry would flourish, is because they were under the dominion of the Sassanian, Sassanian dynasty. The Sassanians were at first a little bit harsh to the Jews, but within a few years of them overcoming the Parthians, the Persians in the early 3rd century, they would be particularly friendly. The Talmud very often talks about a Shpur, Shpur Malka, King Sapir I, who was the great king of the Sassanians, who gave the Jews tremendous power, tremendous 
religious freedoms, they were Zoroastrians, they were, mon- they were monotheists, and they respected the Jews. And they, they not only respected the Jews, but they checked the Byzantine Empire. So because the Byzantines were never able to overtake this land, Babylonian Jewry was spared the Christian onslaught that would start in the 3rd century. So you had all of these Jews under the Sassanians until the 6th century, late 6th century, completely in an oasis of religious freedom, of power, and of success. In this atmosphere of general tranquility, that's all Jews need, is general tranquility, Talmudic study flourished, Judaism was strengthened, and it was a time when the Talmud was edited in Babylonia. As the Jerusalem Talmud is being stopped in its tracks, as Jews throughout Israel are being persecuted and are forced to leave by the Christians, who they were not able to study Talmud, they were not able to practice the religion, where their synagogues were being burnt, and their lives were threatened, Babylonian jury was completely in tranquility. They wrote the Talmud at this time. As I mentioned, it started when Rav, the third century when Rav leaves Palestine to Babylonia. That was a symbol that the greatest sage of Palestine had left, moved to Babylonia. Rav would become the Rosh Hashiva of Surah. His contemporary and colleague Shmuel, Samuel, was found throughout the Talmud. He was the Rosh Hashiva of Nahardah. That was the other great yeshiva in Babylonian. Eventually, Nahardah would close down and the yeshiva would move to Pumpadisya. So Pumpadisya and Surah until the 11th century would be the greatest yeshivas in the world leading all the sages in ba- uh, 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 throughout the world the questions all went there it would only be in the 10th 11th century when, when things would transfer over to Europe but until that point Surah and Pumadisa for over 700 years were the Torah centers 700 years that's a really long time for these yeshivas to be dominant throughout the world it's not surprising that it's Shmuel who says that the, the law of the land is binding. Dina, the Malchusa, Dina. Shmuel was the Amorah in the Talmud who said that the law of the land is binding. Now, there's a, there's a debate, is that biblical, is that rabbinic? Most opinions hold it's rabbinic. Shmuel is the one who says that, and he said it at a time where things were going well for the Jews. I, when I was in law school, I actually wrote for a, a, a paper, uh, which I got three credits for, Dina the Malchusa did a Nazi Germany. Okay, do you say the law of the land is binding in Nazi Germany? Now, obviously, anti-Semitic laws, you don't say are binding. There's no question you don't, you don't have to apply racist or anti-Semitic laws, but you have to follow traffic signal, signals in a country which is evil. Do you have to pay taxes in, the, in, in such a country? So that was the paper I wrote, meaning because if Nazi Germany, it would be a little bit harder to say dinner and also say dinner. Follow the law of the land, this is a corrupt country. This is a destructive country. Shmuel says that, and he doesn't always say it for Babylonia, but he said it at a time where it was peaceful and tranquility in Babylonia. Of course, the Tama talks about Abai Verovo. In fact, one of the, 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 the expressions which the Tama uses for Talmudic analysis is Havoyus Davai Verovo. The analysis, the discussions of Abai Verovo. 
But Rev Ashi, perhaps, who was the final editor with Ravina of the Talmud, he was the Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the Rebbe of Babylon and Judea. Rav Ashi, who lived at the end of the 5th century, was a great sage, he was powerful, he was wealthy, and he was determined and successful, successful at finishing the Babylonian Talmud. One of the things that Rav Ashi did besides finishing the Babylonian Talmud is he restarted, he rejuvenated Yarche Kala. Yarche Kala means the months of Kala. There were two months a year where all of the Jews of Asia Minor and Babylonia, everyone took off, came and studied in the yeshivas. And they would have classes all day, whether you were a farmer, whether you were a merchant, they would literally study all day. And tens of thousands of people would come at a time, sometimes hundreds of thousands. So much of the Rav Ashi said to himself, if these, if these Babylonians had any brains, they'd convert by watching this. Here you have hundreds of thousands of people going ahead in tremendous Kavad He was amazed that nobody ended up converting around it. That's what he, he, the Talmud remarks. Today, there is actually a little bit remnant of this called Yarche Kala. Oh, goodness, Israel has it every year. They, they go to a week to Israel. Um, certain Shivas have it. It's a wonderful idea. A person has a week off and the, 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 the company is shut down in December. I can tell you that there are numerous Yarche Kalas that go on throughout this country and in Israel of people who want to rejuvenate the Torah study. They get together and they study this Yarche Kala well, it's a small remnant of what Rav Ashi rejuvenated in the 5th century. Rav Ashi really was at the end of the Amorayim, who we discussed a, a couple weeks ago, who were the interpreters, the explainers. After the Amorayim, there was a small period of time, approximately from 490 to 590, of the common era called the Savrayim. Savrayim were those who did the, 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 the final touches, the, the check-throughs of the Talmud. And after 590 starts the period of the Go'onim. Rav Haigon, of course, is famous. Rav Sajagon, Rav Achaigon. Go'in means genius. Brilliant. Sometimes people today call him, he's a Go'in. Most of the time it's misapplied. <laughs> Used a little bit too liberally. Because really a Go'in means a genius. There are Go'inim today. But not as liberally as it's used. A Go'in means a person who is above and beyond brilliant. That will start the period of the Go'inim, which won't discussed in detail today. Babylonian jury was tranquil, it was peaceful, it was a time of Talmudic scholarship, but in the 6th century, things began to go awry. As the Sassanids started to get shaky, and they started to become threatened by the Byzantines and the Christians, they persecuted Christian missionaries amongst them. Okay? They persecuted... Now, you have to imagine today, you know, I get this question very often, uh, I don't want to discuss the politics of it now, because it's a very, very complex question, but no one would think, if we're in America today, and it's religious Muslims that are causing problems, I think, I think it's fair to say that if you, most terrorists are Muslims, and not religious Muslims, well, if you can have certain countries coming down on religion, like France, they didn't just come down on the Muslims, they came down on religious objects in general. They're gonna, they don't want to be completely only picking on the Muslims, so they're going to hit religious groups in general. So, whenever you have an attack on religious groups, it's going to hit everyone. Well, the, the, the Sassanids, who were Zoroastrians, they went after the Christian missionaries to shut them down. 
But the Jews, well, we, have, we can't necessarily look into them also, and they're a little bit like them. So they started giving the Jewish people a really hard time as a corollary to the Christians. It was really the act of the Christians. And the kingdom became very, very shaky. The Reish Galusa was even killed at one point because they became fanatic in their opposition to Christianity and the Reish Galusa was also viewed as a threat. Okay? So the, 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 the peace was there, became shaky. Ultimately, in 602 to 628 would be the Byzantine Christian Eastern Orthodox Church Byzantine Empire versus the Sassanids. This would be a 26 year war. And at first, the Sassanids were <coughs> successful but ultimately they would lose. The Byzantine Empire knocked down the Sassanids and at that point it looked like Babylonian Jewry was going to be in direct danger for the first time. Sassanids because they didn't actually conquer Babylonia, they conquered all of the Syria, Israel, which the Persians had conquered at one point for a few years, and the direct threat to the Sassanid Empire itself, because they were, they were on, the, on, on the ropes. And the, the Byzantines thought they finally had the Jewish people in their pocket. And it, indeed, it looked really, really, really bad for the Jews. Because we already discussed two weeks ago the Justinian Codes, and if you were a Jew in six 25 of the common error, you basically were looking at a Hitler-type scenario, scenario, not knowing where to go. Because if you couldn't get out of the Christian Empire, which now went all the way, except for a little bit where Babylonia was just spared, and they're at, they're, it's like the Israeli Jewry in 1941, as the Nazis are in Egypt, in Al-Alamin, you know, at the gates of Israel must have taken them over. It looks really dangerous. And it looked really bad. Look at source number two. This is Rabbi Barrowine. Most Jewish historians, until the recent revisionist historians, I mean, Jewish historians, about even like Gretz and certainly Halevi, the early uh, 19th century historians, are convinced that the Byzantine church would have attempted to eradicate Judaism totally if the church itself had not been defeated in, in, and its plan for hegemony in Asia Minor and the Mediterranean basin thwarted by the rising tide of Islam. Thus, the coming of Islam may be seen as a providential occurrence that allowed the Jews to slip between the cracks Islam made in the Byzantine church persecution. However, as is the case in all historic gifts in, the Jewish, in Jewish history, the rise of Islam would prove to be only a mis- mixed blessing for Israel. These two kingdoms, the Byzantines and the Sassanids, had so exhausted themselves in this 26-year war. Now remember, Muhammad, which we'll discuss very shortly, starts, goes to Medina in 622. The war ends 628. Muhammad dies 632. They, within 634, these kingdoms are conquered. They basically had fought a world war and were tired. Their armies were depleted. Their resources were stretched. As Oxford professor James Howard Johnston wrote, that the Islam, the Arab Islamists coming after this war can only be likened to a human tsunami. Historians say that this Babylonian, Sassanid, Byzantine war completely opened the door for Islam to spread throughout the Middle East. And in fact, 
the Sassanid Parthian Empire would be destroyed from history. Babylonia, Persia, since the early 7th century, would can be under Islamic domination. The Byzantine Empire lost the whole Middle East, lost all of the North Africa possessions, and they were left with only a small amount of Asia Minor by Turkey, which would fall eventually in the 5th century. But in the 7th century, they used something called Greek fire. And to protect Babylon and to protect Constantinople because what happened is that the Arabs tried to conquer it by ship and he had a type of Greek fire which probably Chaim can explain to you how it works but it basically did not get extinguished no, anyway. we, we, we actually lost it we lost it okay yeah. Yeah, so, it's a no, 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 no. So, so they had this Greek fire and they were able to push back the Arab attackers but that's they were only able to use that scene the Arabs couldn't figure out how that fire didn't get extinguished in order and they lost the battle for Constantinople. Eventually, they would take it over by land. <laughs> they would march in, there, uh, march in there and now it's Istanbul. But the Byzantine Empire was decimated as well. The rise of Islam. In the last lecture, we discussed that Christianity was able to spread throughout the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire was impressed by Judaism. A pagan, barbaric world, gladiators, orgies in the bathhouses, an, an angst, an anxiety because everything's left up to fate. Seeing monotheistic family value Jews, they were impressed by it. And many people converted. Many people wanted to convert. Many people were impressed, but they were not going to circumcise themselves. They weren't going to follow Jewish law. Saul of Tarsus, Paul taps into that and makes a watered-down, pagan-friendly, Christian Judaism to, to sell to, to the pagans. Well, a similar reality was in Arabia of the time, that Jewish values and Jewish ideas were spread throughout the Arabian Peninsula. Look at source number three. This is M. Hirsch Goldberg in the Jewish Connection. In Arabia, whole tribes converted to Judaism including two tight kinds of Himorites, which we'll discuss shortly, French Bible critic Ernest Renan remarked that only a hair's breadth prevented all Arabia from becoming Jewish. And there is no argument that the world of, that Muhammad was born into in the year 570 when he was born was a very violent pagan world. In the words of Houston Smith in his classic, The Religions of Man, this is, Houston Smith is a very big liberal, positive view of things. He goes so far as to call the Arab society before the advent of Muhammad completely, utterly barbaric. There was drunken brawls in the desert, sexual orgies, right? blood feuds, a lot of these things <laughs> continued in the desert even after of Islam, but at least they're theologically incorrect, but that was the reality of the desert where, Muslim, where the Muslims would, would take over. Kaaba, which is a stone today in Mecca, was, was a pagan worship site. It was the most prominent site of pagan worship in the Arabian desert. That's where they worshipped Allah, the God. Okay? Allah is not a new word. They had Allah. Under Allah, there was Allah, who was a sun goddess, and Al-Uzah, which, which was the equivalent of Venus, who were the daughters of Allah. These were all worshipped in Mecca, surprisingly enough. 
like Saul, Muhammad, when he sells Islam, is going to tap into pagan tendencies of the Arab people around him. So he'll, he's going to pick as the one site is the Kaaba, but now it's sanctified in his eyes. That was the site where people were going anyways and doing pagan worship would become the central spot of Islamic worship. Muhammad was born in 570 of the Common Era. He was orphaned at an early age and raised by his uncle. He worked as a merchant and dealt very often with Jews who he is impressed by. Disenchanted with life in Mecca, Muhammad goes to the caves. He goes up to the mountains and he goes up to the caves. And there he claims that he spoke to the angel Gabriel, Jabriel. And he had visions. And eventually God spoke to him. And that the one God, who is complete, says that we have to surrender to him. Islam, the word Islam, means to surrender. Muslims are those who surrender. That Islam says you have to surrender your desires to the one God and become a Muslim are those who, who answer this. Muhammad claimed to be the prophet of God. Never at all claiming to be Gali, but the prophet of God. He would say many surahs when he's saying, which eventually would be uh, in the Quran. Um, we'll discuss that uh, shortly. So, preaching an end to lewdness, and we'll see how he, his own marriages were, need for peace, trying to, pre, uh, to, to improve the lives and the morality of the people around him, he started his new religion, Islam. Islam is built on five pillars. All of them, at some level, he got from the Jews. And we'll see how much he got from the Jews shortly. Faith in God, as the Quran says, there is no God but Allah. Prayer, prayer, five times a day. Charity, 2.5% of one's income. Not my get 2.5% of your income. A pilgrimage to Mecca, once in a lifetime, called the Hajj, which is famous. Now remember, who who started the idea of pilgrimages? Who was the first people to do it? Us, Shosh Regolim. We had to go up to Yushalayim. We made Yushalayim the center of Judaism. Fasting, you fasted for a month in Ramadan. Uh, just it's worth it to mention another fundamental from the beginning of Islam was jihad. Now, jihad, contrary to some conservative pundits, does not mean holy war. Not at least in its dictionary form. Jihad means struggle. It happens to be that since the 7th century in Sharia law, the word jihad is used for holy war. It's used almost exclusively in Muslim literature as a holy war against non-Muslims. Right? A struggle against non-Muslims. So when you hear um, Bin Laden say jihad, he's not talking about a struggle, contrary to what our president wants to finesse. He's not talking about an inner struggle. Osama Bin Laden is not having a personal uh, breakdown. When he says jihad, he's talking about a struggle against the nations of the world, jihad, a holy war against them. Initially, in Mecca, Muhammad attracted very, very few followers. And after three years of his visions, and he would fall down and, ha- and act like he had all kinds of visions, people, so contemporary critics say he 
was a good actor or showsman. He had only 40 followers. Only 40 followers. And many people would say, well, you're not going to catch on with your 40 followers, many of whom were not of the upper strata of Meccan society. But he did not give up. And within a few more years, he had thousands of followers. And now you had a crusader, if you can use that word by Muhammad, going around and missionizing and pagan worship. Don't go to the Kaaba and do idolatry. Now, Kaaba, the Kaaba, this pagan site was the heart of Mecca. This was the most important thing in Mecca. They tried to kill Muhammad at this point. They tried to kill Muhammad because he was a threat to the economy of Mecca. He was a threat to the social values and the morals of Mecca. So in the year 622 of the Common Era, Muhammad does his Higira, he does his, he does his travel to Yatrib, which is now known as Medina, the city of the Prophet, and he travels to Medina. Now, that starts year one of the Muslim calendar. When, when Muhammad leaves Mecca to Medina, is, is under Islamic theology the first year of the calendar, that trek. Well, when he comes to Medina, if he was, knew the Jews of Mecca, he would realize that the Jews of Medina were very, very populous, very, very um, powerful. And at first, he thought wrongly that they would follow and embrace him. They would embrace his new message to them because it was very, very similar. At some level, Judaism is much more similar to Islam than Christianity. We'll see soon that Christianity incorporates a lot more Trinity, a lot more pagan things at some level than, than, than Islam. Islam is law-based, not faith-based. There are many laws in Islam. He thought that Jews would buy it. But before that, we have to know who were these Jews in Arabia. Who were those Jews? There were tens of thousands of Jews. Mecca was almost 30 or 40, not Mecca, Medina was almost 30 or 40 percent Jewish. Some historians say even a larger percent of that Jewish when Muhammad comes to Medina. Judaism was well established in the Arabian Peninsula way before Muhammad, hundreds of years before. And there are numerous opinions. Were these actual halachic Jews? Some of them unquestionably were halachic Jews. Or were some of them people who mimicked and copied Jewish practices like you had in the Roman Kingdom? (coughs) There were many Jews who came there originally. Some historians contend that 80,000 Jews went to the Arabian Peninsula. When I say Arabian Peninsula, we're not talking about Babylonia, current day Iraq. We're talking about modern day Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Yeah. Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Some stories say 80,000 Jews went, many of them to the area of, of Yemen, after the Babylonian occupation of, of, of Eretz Israel. More Jews went after the Romans conquered the second base of the Jewish, and even more Jews after Bar Kokhba. There was an additional immigration in the 4th century from Jews running away in, from Christians in Syria. And finally, there was a large population of Arabs who converted. Almost a Khazar form of kingdom. And that was the Himorite kingdom, the, which in Greek was called the Homerite kingdom. The Himorites, <coughs> as we saw uh, from the quote earlier, where there were many tribes Himorites that converted. Himorite kingdom was all of lower Saudi Arabia and modern day Yemen. And in the 6th century, the king of the Himorites converted. How did this happen? 
the Himmerites were controlling all of, all, all of Yemen, southern Saudi Arabia. The Byzantines thought if they would conquer, they would come down from up in Asia Minor down to, to get to, to the Red Sea, they would have they would control the waters. So they tried to attack the Arabian Peninsula. The Amorites obviously were not going to put up with it. They went north to fight against them, and very successful. On the way, the Himalayan king stops in Yatrib, modern-day Medina, and puts his son as the governor of Medina. Now remember, Medina is 30% Jewish. This governor gets killed. When he hears this, he does a 360, comes back, 180, comes back to destroy uh, Medina, and attacks the city. Now the Jews, of course, are part of the defense. If the city gets killed, they get killed. And as this siege of Medina is going on, this Himmerite king becomes gravely ill. Two Jewish savants, two Jewish brilliant doctors, go out of Medina, go to the king, speak to him, cure him of his sickness. He, he no longer attacks Medina, because they cured him. He brings them back to the Himmerites, and then converts the whole kingdom. Now, Historians all say that the whole kingdom didn't convert, but a large percent of the kingdom did. And if you look in in Yemen of the time, all the official documents will say mention religious terms as, such as Rahman, the Merciful, God of Israel, Lord of Judah. Now, were these conversions good? What the story? What these are? These Hamites? No one really knows because eventually they would be overthrown, and we don't we don't have any remnant of them. Well, we don't know. So I'm saying people question because we'll see later shortly that their practices were not thorough. They had no rabbis really. Talking about a wild west area, the the, the Talmudic academies, as we mentioned, were in Babylonia. There was no yeshivas there. There was no Jewish schools there. These Arabian Jews were by themselves for the most part. And what who these Himalites are is a matter of debate to our very day. Were they Jewish Arabs, or were they Arabs who Judaized, who had some Jewish practice, but never having formal conversions and formal Jewish um, educations. Interestingly, Medina was such a popular Jewish place that when the Reish Galusas in the 5th century, late 5th century, were put in danger, one of them actually ran and hid in Medina for a period of time. So Muhammad comes now to this Jewish Arabia. He comes to Medina's 240 miles away from Mecca. He's much more in the Jewish territories. Lots of Jews there. He thinks when he comes as the prophet of God, and of course he follows many Jewish laws, right? forbids eating pig, circumcision, daily prayer, fasting during the first month of the year, all kinds of Jews. In fact, Islam originally prays facing not Mecca, but to Jerusalem. Okay? Muhammad will only change the, the, where they prayed after. They will do ritual slaughter. Halal meat. He mimicked the Jews. Right? Muhammad follows Jews. Halal meat is following Jewish shechita. He thought the Jews would buy into this very, very, at some level, similar type of uh, of religion. In fact, Muhammad was very critical of Christianity. You know, he may call them, as well, a people of the book. But look at source number four. <clears throat> this is from the Quran, Surah 5, 
Unbelievers are those that say Allah is the son, is is the Messiah, the son of Mary. Unbelievers are those that say Allah is one of three. There is but one God. If they do not desist from saying so, those of them that disbelieve shall be sternly punished. And another place in the Quran he compares them almost to idolaters. He says, what is this Trinity business? You're unbelievers. Who could believe in Trinity? Who could believe that the God is the Messiah, a son of a lady? Look at source number five. This is Goitin in, in Jews and Arabs. The intrinsic values of the belief in one God, the creator of the world, the God of justice and mercy, before whom everyone high and low bears personal responsibility, came to Muhammad as he never ceased to emphasize from Israel. Okay, of the 25 prophets mentioned in the Quran, 19 of those prophets are Jewish prophets. Look at source number 6. This is Paul Johnson, as we mentioned previously, a Christian historian. What, Muhammad, what he, Muhammad, seemed to have wished to do was to destroy the polyistic paganism of the Oasis culture by giving the Arabs Jewish ethical monotheism in a language that they could understand and in terms adapted to their ways. He accepted the Jewish God and their prophets. The idea of fixed law embodied in scripture, the Quran being an Arab, Arabic substitute for the Bible and the addition of an oral law applied in the religious courts. They had hadith, which is a, a, which is a form of Islamic oral law. Muhammad, however, would be very, very disappointed. When Muhammad arrives in Medina, there are three tremendously powerful Jewish clan tribes. Some of them are Himorites, this, this kingdom that we mentioned previously that converted. There were the Bnei Karaza, the Bnei Banu Nadir, and the Banu Kanuikya. If that is how it's pronounced, that's a miracle that I said it correctly. So don't count on it. Uh, the, all three of them are mentioned in the Quran heavily. And how Muhammad eventually destroys all three of them is heavily discussed. These three tribes were extremely big power brokers in Medina. When Muhammad first comes, he has a constitution of Medina which he promises the Jewish tribes and those pagans around them religious freedoms as long as you do certain things. When Mecca, who didn't trust Muhammad, came to attack uh, Muhammad and there was a humongous battle called the Battle of, battle of Badir which is heavily discussed in the Quran where Mecca, who is the heavy favorite, lost. Muhammad claimed that these Jewish tribes tried to kill him and backstab him. And he methodically killed, destroyed, beheaded these three Jewish tribes. Coincidentally, none of them accepted Muhammad as a prophet. All of them rejected at him and laughed at his claim to be a prophet from God. Now, remember, we'll discuss in a second why Jews accepted prophecy according to Jews. The Jews had ended over a thousand years earlier. They were not going to accept a non-Jew, a Gentile. Jesus was a Jew, by the way. Right? Jesus claimed to be a Messiah. They falsely came to be from David, but at least he was a Jew. He was an illiterate, as we'll soon discuss, illiterate, illiterate, unscriptured un, un, un Gentile 
claiming to be the prophet of the Jews. They weren't going to accept him. Even these Jews who were not the strongest in their background laughed at him. He got upset at them and he had them killed. He, had, he beheaded them. He didn't mind though taking two of these two girls from these tribes and marrying them. So two of Muhammad's 13 wives were Jews. Okay? Muhammad had 13 wives and countless concubines. Okay? In fact, in Islamic law, which is not particularly favorable to ladies, uh, every Muslim is entitled to four wives and as many concubines as you choose. Divorce, of course, is almost completely in the hands of the man. Very difficult for a lady to get divorced. Um, very easy for a man. Muhammad himself, one of his wives, which the anti-Muslims, you always say, was only six years old when he married her. Her name was Aisha, A-I-S-H-A. And in her writings, she had some kind of writings where she lamented her faith with this Muhammad, this prophet, um, because he abused her. So she was only six years old. In fact, it became okay in Muslim culture to marry young girls. It became actually in vogue because the prophet Muhammad did it. Certainly, we should do it as well. I think just today, I just saw that uh, the modern day Haman in Iran was pushing for Iranian girls to get married at 15 years old. Okay, that's just in our news today. But he married a six-year-old. Muhammad did get a few Jews to convert, including one rabbi-type figure. I mean, again, there's no Jewish records of any scholarship in Arabia. But one person who claimed to be a rabbi in this area, and a very few other Jews. Muhammad was, not only did he kill the tribes around him, but he was furious at the rejection. He would go ahead, and in the words of William Montgomery Watt, who was an Islamist, he was particularly fond of Islam, and considered in certain circles one of the foremost um, um, scholars of Islam. Bernard Lewis, who is a Jew in, in, in Oxford, is considered the foremost. But Montgomery Watt, who was an em- em- emeritus professor in Edinburgh, a Scottish professor, wrote a book, Muhammad at Mecca and Muhammad at Medina. So he says at this point, Muhammad went berserk on the Jews, and he went on to criticize them as being claiming they're the chosen ones and they're not the chosen ones they're exaggerating who they are and he claimed that the Jews at this point had falsified the Bible which until that point was not a claim we will discuss that claim soon because Muhammad's going to say that Abraham is where religion starts but he'll say that ultimately Yishmael was the chosen son the Arabs and Muhammad follow the the theme that they were descendants of Ishmael. But he would change the Bible. And he, can, he said that the Jewish people had changed the Bible. They falsified the Bible. Which is a ludicrous claim which we'll discuss shortly. He also made some claim, and this, many people are puzzled. What is it? It is in the Quran that the Jews say that Ezra is a son of God. And how could they say that? Now, I don't know of any of you, but I've never seen in Jew- Jewish literature anything, anywhere of Ezra being a son of God. Certainly Ezra was one of the great Jewish sages. But Muhammad claims this is in the Quran that the Jews say that Ezra is, is a son of God. Now, some historians claim that Muhammad was illiterate and he made other mistakes in the Quran. Other historians claim that maybe these Arabic Jews who were questionable in the whole lineage, and some of them didn't were ignorant, maybe they did think Ezra is a son of God. Who knows what they thought? And he saw that in the Arabic Jews around him. But he himself said, the Jews think that, that Ezra is the Son of God. 
And in his vilification of Jews, you're going to find the passages of the Quran where he's going to give ammunition to contemporary Hezbollah, Hamas, Iranian leaders to say the Jews are evil. Listen to these surahs which he says after the Jews reject him because once Muhammad changes the Bible, as what happens is he gets upset, he changes praying from Mecca, from Jerusalem to Mecca, he starts saying not only am I a prophet, but the Bible's false. If you're going to say the Bible's false, then Jews are going to not only not accept you, they're going to sneer at you. They started sneering at Muhammad. They thought the guy's a radical lunatic. So listen to what Muhammad had to say. Surah 261. And humiliation and wretchedness were stamped upon them, it's one of the Jews, and they were visited with wrath from God. Surah 585. Of all men, you will certainly find the Jews to be the most intense in hatred of those who believe. Muhammad was most threatened theologically by the Jews. The most intense in hatred of those who believe. Well, who are those who believe? Those are Muslims, those who subjugate themselves, submit themselves to God. Vendors are they of error and are desires that you go astray from the way. Because the Jews are saying, your Bible, what are you talking about? Your Quran is false. They reject Muhammad, so they're a threat. And desires that you go astray, but God has cursed them for their unbelief. Okay? So this would be image. Now, on, there are other passages of the Quran which are more favorable, or Muhammad calls the Jews, because remember, Islam is based off Judaism. <laughs> the fundamentals of Islam are based off Judaism. He can't completely disparage them because otherwise, 19 or 25 prophets, most of the customs and laws have a Jewish basis. A mimic Judaism. So, listen to this passage from the Quran. We sent down the Torah, the Torah, in which there is guidance and light by which the prophets who surrendered to God's will provided judgments for the Jewish people. Also the rabbis and the doctors of law, according to that portion of God's book with which they were entrusted. And they likewise became witnesses to it as well. Whoever does not judge by what God has sent down, including the Torah, they are indeed unbelievers. So he does give and does say other positive things in other places about the Jews. Muhammad, after he kills those three tribes, in general, deals with the other Jews of Arabia generally favorable. Muhammad, in the year 630 of the Common Era, goes back with 10,000 troops to Mecca, conquers Mecca, and by two years later, in 632, at the time of his death, had conquered most of the Arabian Peninsula. So at Muhammad's death, most of the Arabian Peninsula, including Yemen and all of, most of what's today Saudi Arabia, is under Islam. But that's it. When he dies, there is a crisis in the Islamic world. Who is going to take over? Who is the heir apparent? And there's all kinds of stories. I don't have to go into Islamic thought, but just suffice it to say, there were two schools. One held his cousin Ali, who married his daughter Fatima. He should be the, he should be the leader. The other held his first convert and his father-in-law, Abu Bakr. The followers of Ali, who was ultimately killed, or disappeared, and his daughter, and his daughter were the Shias, the Shiites. The Shiites, for the rest of history, would claim that they were persecuted. And that their leader was killed, and at the end of time, everything's going to go, go back. Shiites are approximately 15 to 16 percent of Islam today. About 200 million 
people are Shiites, most of them in Iran, Oman, Indonesia has a large population of them as well. And Lebanon is very small, but a large percent of Lebanon are Shiites. The vast majority followed Abu Bakr and Omar, as we discussed previously, who spread and took over after Abu Bakr and spread Islam throughout North Africa, throughout the Middle East. Caliph Omar, when he takes over, it was after the original rejection of Muhammad. And for practical, as well as other reasons, he had a very uh, tolerable level of appreciation of the Jews. As mentioned, he gave the Reish Galusa, his sister-in-law. He did not persecute the Jews. And he would go ahead and conquer all of the Middle East, including Jerusalem. Now remember, we discussed a few weeks ago that when Jerusalem was destroyed, the Christians, not the Romans, and later the Christians forbade any Jews from stepping foot in Jerusalem. There were no Jews that had lived in Jerusalem practically since 70 of the Common Era. When he conquers in 638 of the Common Era Jerusalem, was really the first time the Persians during the, the assassinates, during the war for the Byzantines, conquered Jerusalem for a little short period of time and let the Jews back in Jerusalem, but they were all killed when the, when the, when the Byzantines reconquered Jerusalem. There's a famous painting, I forgot which, I think it was Sorbonne, wherever it is, of the three battles of Jerusalem in 30 years. First, assassinates conquered Jerusalem, and the Byzantines, and then eventually the Arabs. All, the Jerusalem fell three times straight uh, within 30 years. So when he comes into Jerusalem, it's the first time Jews are able to repopulate Jerusalem, really, since 70 the Common Era. Interestingly enough, that, you know, the Quran never mentions Jerusalem. I mean, the Quran never mentions in one place Jerusalem. But, in one of the surahs, there's this line that's like this. There's a famous story of Barak. You know, Barack Obama? Heard of Barack Obama? Well, his name, Barak, comes from the steed, the horse of Muhammad. That's where his name comes from. The horse of Muhammad was al-Barak, was Barak. And this is not just a horse. This was not a regular horse. This is a horse that had a woman's body in the front and a peacock tail on the back. And in this horse, he went to al-Aqsa. The end of the world, the ends of the heavens. Where is al-Aqsa? Very big debate. There are those who claim that al-Aqsa is where Jerusalem is. Okay, and, and in Al-Aqsa, the Quran says he speaks to Gabriel, he meets up with Moses and with Jesus and all the, uh, and many others, and they discuss for 40 days he has visions. Um, Bernard Lewis, interestingly enough, the Quran does not mention Jerusalem. Um, ultimately, Jerusalem becomes the third holiest city in Sunni sect of Islam, the fourth holiest city in the Shia, Kabbalah is more holy according to Shias. Yeah, but but the, the, the Burra Lewis mentions if you look at all early Islamic literature they used to call Jerusalem Bat Bayat Al-Maktis which means the place of the Jewish temple. It's only later that they changed the name to Halam al-Sharif the noble sanctuary you know where, where, where Barak the horse of Muhammad stayed that where it became politicized, that that uh, things changed. I remember once I was I was in a, I was getting shoes, and some Yemenite person came to me. They say, as they said, where are you where are you from? I said I was studying in Israel. He said Israel, what's what's that? 
so I said Jerusalem. So there's another, this is actually, you know, in, in one of these stores. Another person was young, I said, they say, Al-Quds. <laughs> then, oh, Al-Quds! Right, right, so Al-Quds is um, where, where, where the, the holy part. Islam, when they find Jerusalem, in particular the Temple Mount, it's filled with garbage. Remember this. The Christians looked at Jerusalem as a proof that the Jews were rejected. Okay, we're not up to the state of Israel and the Jewish return to the land of Israel. But remember, in Christian theology, the destruction of the second temple means the Jews have been rejected. That's why the Jews going back to Israel, reconquering Jerusalem, is a theological serious threat to Christian dogma. They left the Temple Mount as filled with garbage. This was a proof that the Jews had been rejected. Islam did the complete opposite. They built the Dome of the Rock over to show that Islam had supplanted Judaism. Okay, they, they cleared off the whole mountain, which was filled with junk from the Christians for generations. And they built the, the, the Dome of the Rock on top of it. Now, the Dome of the Rock is not a, is a shrine. It's not a mosque. The mosque is actually Al-Aqsa Mosque. On the south side, right, there's two mosques up there. One's a shrine, the Dome of the Rock. And the other is the mosque, Rahman Lutz, both of them on the, on the Harabais. Every time, I, I can't, I can never walk into a Jewish house and see, you know, actually, my, my wife, when she made the flyer, she wanted to put a picture of the Kosovo on there. For the, I, and originally, the first picture had the, the, the mosque on it, the, the, the Dome of the Rock. I said, how can I put a picture of it? I mean, I don't know how people have pictures of that in their house joyfully. If I ever have a picture of a Kosovo, I don't want to, why would you want to see a Dome of the Rock, the Dome of the Rock shrine, or an Al-Aqsa mosque on top? It's, a, it's, it's the biggest Chil Hashem. It should hit our heart like a, like a dagger. I would, I would have to be jaded not to be bothered when we see such pictures. So, but, in, but what did Islam do? Where, look what they put on in the Dome of the Rock when it's built in 691, 50 years after it's conquered. They wrote a, put a thing from Surah 112. Say, He is God alone, God the Eternal. He has no children, and He was not born. They also, that was a, a direct attack on Christianity, who they conquered it from. They also made the dome higher than all the Christian churches in the surrounding area, purposely. One, to show that it was where the former temple was, Islam had beat Judaism. The second was an attack on Christianity, that Islam was greater than Christianity. As a whole, though, the Jews were generally welcomed the Muslims coming to Jerusalem. First time they were able to go back. First time the Christians were persecuting the Jews throughout their, their territories, the Byzantines. They had some... Um, ability to serve God and we'll see in a second how, how so Omar who generally friendly the Jews did something else he took out all of the Jews from Arabia and made Arabia Jew free Jew free Christian free from now on no non-Muslims were able to live in the Arabian Peninsula in particular in particular Mecca and Medina he had one area Jeddah which was a port area where he let, it was, like, it was a religion-free zone where he let Jews stay who were merchants. But always he took them out and pretty much, although not always the case, the Arabian Peninsula became not only Jew-free, but Christian-free, pagan-free. Pagan. Pagan-free um, as well. No, just hold the questions and comments, please. Um, so, this at some level would look like a, a negative but really, if you ask me, it was a positive because 
Here you had Jews who had no leadership whatsoever. Most definitely, had they stayed in those areas, they would have been lost to the Jewish people. Those Jews all went to the large Jewish centers where they actually could be literate in Judaism and Babylonian for the most part. Once the Muslims had taken over approximately 90% of the Jewish world, how did they treat the Jews? How were the Jews treated? Now we imagine Muhammad at first was violently against the Jews when they rejected him and vehemently killed many of them. He murdered thousands of Jews. He beheaded them. (laughs) He didn't just kill them. It's like in the Quran how they beheaded them and threw them into ditches. That's that's what they did to these people. So the Quran has one phrase which is well quoted. Be the Muslims, Jews, Christians, or Sabians. Sabians were near him, writes, those who believed in God in the last day and those who do well have their reward with the Lord. They have nothing to fear and they will not sorrow. Muslims made Jews dimmies. They made them second class citizens. Jews and Christians became people of the book, which we'll discuss in a minute. But I want to just stress one thing. There's a modern day myth and we'll, we'll have a class just in the golden age of Spain. There's a modern day myth that in general Muslims were, were amicable and kind to the Jews. That myth is, is never a reality. I mean, you read the words from Maimonides on, general, you know, with rare exceptions, general Jews in Muslim society were persecuted, at times forcibly converted, but definitely treated as second-class citizens, as we discussed, and very, very often put under tremendous duress. Okay, there were forced conversions in Morocco at times, in Spain at times, in, in Iran, Meshad was completely wiped out, where does this idea of Muslim, the Muslims being amicable to the Jews and friendly to the Jews as a general rule come? Personally, I think it's Arab, Arabs and anti-Zionist Jews. You read, because if you look at the literature, past couple hundred years, you'll see the change. And these were people who wanted to show that Israel was, didn't have to be there. So you have real, you know, Arabs and they want to argue their point that, they, that the Jews in Yemen didn't have to leave and the Jews in Iraq and in Morocco and in Iran we were always kind, we were always good to them, Israel was never necessary and anti-Zionist Jews, be them religious, be it liberal left-wing professor and secular anti-Zionist Jews they also would have a nostalgia fantasy world of what the Muslim world was like to the Jews. The Muslim world was the Rambam. Maimani said it was more vicious than the Christian world at times. In the time of the Rambam, by the way, it was more vicious. There were more forced conversions under Islam than there were in the Christian world. Maimani had to run his whole life until his later years for Muslims who forcibly converted the population around him. One of his most famous letters is the Epistle to Yemen, for Jews who were having false messiah, Jews who were first converted, he has a, a letter called the Igeret Hashmad, a letter to those who were forcibly converted by Muslims. This is propaganda to say that the Muslims were great to the Jews. It was there a checkered, was there a checkered past? Yeah, there were times where there was good, where there were good points. There were leaders who were very friendly, but as a whole, there it was just as bad at times, not as bad as a consistent basis because there were periods where it was pleasant for the Jews at some level but even in the pleasant there were dimmies what did it need to be a dimmy? what did it need to be a dimmy? 
Or being a dimming meant you can never have your head higher than a muzzle. Now, was it always applied 100%? No. But this is what, this is on the books. This is what, this is what Sharia law said. You can never have your head higher than a Muslim. If a Jew is walking on a, on a street and a Muslim walked by, the Jew had to move aside. Um, a Jew can never testify against a Muslim in court. This was actually applied. In the sense that means that there is no justice for a Jew in the Islamic world. A Jew cannot have a house of worship that was higher than a mosque. If you look at the old synagogues, the Sephardic synagogues in Jerusalem, they're all, they're all subterranean. Because they had to build synagogues that were not higher than the, the mosques. And, if you were a Jewish farmer or peasant, you were, ex- uh, you were forced to have extra taxation. There was taxation on Jews and Christians, but farmers and peasants had extra taxation. This actually forced the Jews to leave the rural areas of the Islamic world, to go into the cities, for the most part, and go into merchant and traders. Which is why many of the Jews would become, the mid- in the Middle Ages, the traders throughout the world. Because if you were a farmer, if you were a peasant, you had extra taxes. The Jews went into being merchants. They were the best merchants. We're not going to discuss that now. Because if you were a Jew, you could walk anywhere in the world and have connections. Something and tr- people trust you. You know, I remember once I was on a plane and I met a girl and she was becoming religious at the time. And, you know, I said to her, you know, come to my house for Shabbos. So she just had become religious. She said, you know, it's so amazing. If anyone would invite me, a stranger, to sleep at their house, I would be like affronted usually. You know, like, and here you have an Orthodox Jew or not. You have a place to go, you have a place to go wherever you go in the world for Sabbath. If you need credit, you have people to give you credit wherever you're going to go. Your word, if you had the right words, you had a universal language. So the Jews end up being merchants. So that actually had a positive result as well. Next week, we will discuss the Karaites and the Khazars. Thank you.